You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We start in Mexico, a country dealing with widespread devastation. The president of Mexico declaring a period of national mourning following the deadliest earthquake to hit the country in 30 years. The 7.1 shaker brought down hundreds of homes and buildings. More than 200 people are confirmed dead. Thousands are still missing. Lynn Collier now with more on the frantic search for survivors and what makes that area particularly vulnerable. Searchers frantically calling to elementary school children, trying to direct them to safety after their school collapsed. Several are pulled out alive, barely injured. But more than 20 children and four adults have died. Dozens more are still missing. It's a scene especially hard for Jorge Amigo to watch from Vancouver. It hits at home, but it hits very close to my heart because... Well, my memories, my, my heart, my, my, I grew up in Mexico City. I spent 25 years of my life there. Jorge was only four when the earthquake struck in 1985, but he remembers seeing a swinging lamp in his living room and his mother rushing him outside. 10,000 people were killed. A quarter of a million people left homeless. Earthquake drills quickly became part of everyday life. Lesson very well learned. It is a tremendous collective trauma um, that affected the city, I mean, for generations. Mexico City is built on a dry lake bed, soft soil that makes buildings shake like they were built on jello. The devastation of the 1985 quake was a wake up call. Not only did building codes change, but a new rescue group called Topos was formed. It was a volunteer organization. They had no training at the time, and then since then, they become a highly professional rescue organization led by volunteers and professionals. They've helped in the Haiti earthquake. They've helped, uh, they went to the Indonesia. Being outside of it all, being not in the place where your family is, far away from your friends, you feel a level of, I don't know, a sadness and impotence of uh, wanting to be there, wanting to help. Unlike 1985, where families here spent weeks trying to track down loved ones, Jorge has connected online with everyone, and their posts on social media are helping him deal with being 5,000 kilometers away. It's just beautiful to see the solidarity and the way people are getting together for this. So it's, that's, that's what brings me hope on a very emotional day. Lynn Collier, Global News. Well, if you can help, and a lot of people want to, here are a couple of options for you. On Twitter, you'll find the rescue group Lynn spoke of, Topos, and also the Mexican Red Cross is a great option. And we've put links to both of these resources on our website, globalnews.ca slash BC. Now, the death and destruction in Mexico could have been even worse if not for an early warning system in place, giving residents a few extra seconds to get out of the buildings. With the promise of a big one hitting the Lower Mainland at some point in the future, Nitu Garcha takes a look at what's in place here to save lives. About 15 seconds. That's how much notice some residents in Mexico City had before the shaking. All thanks to an early detection system, one BC doesn't have, but is working towards. There's actually an earthquake early warning system on the Massey Tunnel right now, and also the University of British Columbia has been running an earthquake early warning system for schools in uh, the southwestern area of the province. 
adding to the 38 already in operation, about 40 more sensors are being installed near Vancouver Island. Some under the ocean, most land-based. But they're not set to be ready for use until March 2019, despite audits showing BC isn't ready to handle a catastrophic quake. We know that there's a lot more work that needs to be done. We want to have a comprehensive province-wide approach. Here's how the sensors work. Quakes release energy that travels through the Earth as seismic waves. Primary, or P waves, move faster than secondary, or S waves. It's the latter that cause destructive ground shakes. So the ability to detect the first P waves lets warning systems send out alerts that S waves are about to hit. Depending on where you are in relation to the epicenter of a quake, you could get a few seconds notice. Experts say that could be the difference between life and death. We have uh, about 100 kilometers from, from the coast to be able to detect an earthquake and then to deliver a warning. In Mexico and Japan, the warning systems are public. In Canada, our systems are private, meaning the notice a quake is coming goes out to a select group, including first responders, airports and hospitals. You have to have the idea that you need to take this and your whatever you've got planned and try and be mobile. Regardless of the warning, preparation is key, especially because it's a risky race to get this BC-wide early warning system in place before the big one strikes. Neetu Garcha, Global News. We have some breaking news now in BC politics. After weeks of speculation, Global News can confirm two of the candidates that are vying for the BC Liberal leadership. Keith Baldry is in Victoria now with a big reveal. Keith, what have you learned? Yeah. Not much of a secret, but uh, Diane Watts, the former Surrey mayor, sending out an email blast today, inviting everybody, all of her supporters, to a special announcement uh, in a Surrey hotel on Sunday, where she's going to formally announce her candidacy for the B.C. Liberal leadership and expected to give up her seat. She's now a Conservative MP in Ottawa, expected to give up her seat to devote her attention full-time to seeking that uh, leadership. One of many candidates. The other one, uh, we can confirm on Monday, Andrew Wilkinson, former cabinet minister uh, under Christy Clark's government, he'll be making his formal announcement that he'll be seeking the leadership as well. So those are the first two right off uh, to get things going. The first debate for the party is October 15th. So I think uh, obviously the race is beginning uh, in earnest with these two candidates. And look for more to declare the candidacy next week as the Union of BC Municipalities Convention meets. Great place to get the attention of all the politicals in the province. No doubt. So that's two. Will the floodgates Mm -hmm. open after these two make the announcement? Well, Rich Coleman, the interim leader, tells me as many as 10 people could actually seek the leadership. So uh, here's a list of names of, of people who are being talked about. A number of them will seek it. I don't think all 10, all of them will. But uh, Todd Stone, Mike Bernier, former cabinet minister, Sam Sullivan, who was also a Vancouver, former Vancouver mayor. Mike DeYoung's also talking about running. Uh, Michael Lee, a new MLA in Vancouver, uh, Langara. Uh, uh, Lucy Sager, who's a businesswoman up in, uh, in Terrace. And uh, here's a name. I'll throw this out. First time I heard it today, Tamara Vroom. The current CEO of Van City is being talked about by some fairly senior, credible liberals as someone who may run. I'm not saying she is, but she's certainly being talked about. All right. First time we've heard the name, just like you. Thanks very much, Keith. Appreciate it. The mother of a murder victim appealing tonight to the mother of the man convicted of killing her daughter. It's been nearly seven years since 23-year-old Natasha Montgomery went missing. A jury convicted Cody Lejabakov of her murder and four others in northern B.C. between 2009 and 2010. But Montgomery's body was never found. Today, her mother, RCMP, and about 50 friends and family searched a rest stop about 60 kilometers east of Prince George, an area identified by RCMP as a location Lejabakov may have used to hide the body. 
My plea is to call to action to Cody's mother. I do not blame you for, your, for the action of your son, but please understand that he's the only thing standing between me and my daughter and revealing the location. As a mother, I implore to you to end this suffering. Lejbakov was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years last February. The Supreme Court of Canada dismissed his application to appeal the convictions. A young couple who have just moved to Vancouver from Moncton, New Brunswick, making a public appeal tonight. They've pretty much lost everything after a thief stole a cube van full of their household contents. Jeff Hastings has more on how it happened and the personal mementos they're hoping to get back. You would never prepare for, like, the entire truck to be stolen and all of your stuff is gone. Sabrina and Nathan are living an accidentally Spartan existence. Everything in this room is really all they have after thieves made off in the moving van holding most of their possessions. I answered the phone and he said he had some bad news and I thought, oh no, the truck broke down, we're not going to get our stuff. And then he said the truck was stolen, just kind of <laughs> froze and went... What? <laughs> You're kidding, right? They had hired movers for the journey from Moncton, New Brunswick to Vancouver. Their things had been transferred from a large truck to a smaller U-Haul van when it was stolen from an Abbotsford park and ride last Tuesday, September 12th. The moving company were actually sleeping in that larger uh, vehicle. And so basically they wake up and they notice that the cube van is missing and then they do the right thing and call police. All of our furniture, so bedroom furniture, mattress, box spring, there was books, there were musical instruments, my bass guitar that I've had since uh, junior high school was uh, taken. The van has been found empty in South Surrey. It's been hard to realize that people could be so cruel to take all of your stuff. Especially cruel because much of what's missing only has sentimental value. A rough start to their lower mainland life that they're choosing to look at positively. It could have hypothetically happened anywhere, and yeah, yeah. No, luck, we've really. I've been here before for eight months, and it was I, I love it out here. It's a really nice place. So, Jeff Hastings, Global News. A major mess found in Chilliwack highlights the problem of illegal dumping. A pile of garbage thrown down a hill on a Forest Service road just meters from a salmon hatchery. Aaron MacArthur went to check it out, and Aaron, how it got there is still a bit of a mystery. This disgusting pile of garbage is in a pristine part of the Chilliwack River Valley. Whoever put it here went well out of their way to dump it. The local resident who found it on the weekend wants it gone and wants the person responsible to clean it up. Makes me sick. What a mess. Jim Kalisnik came across this pile of garbage on the weekend, dumped illegally on the side of a logging road up towards Chilliwack Lake. Everything from toilets and rotting food to couches and car parts. Go after the people that did it and yeah. say, hey man, you know, you go pick up the stuff. Uh, why did it have to come to this? But getting to the bottom of who is responsible is a bit of a mystery. Included in the pile were several prescriptions and an address. 4616 Interprovincial Highway which turns out to be an abandoned farmhouse more than 30 kilometers away from the dump site. The family who owned it sold the property about a month ago. The new owners, a company called Canadian Farms, have been cleaning it up. This is not a small farm. We don't need to do that. Cal Sahota has receipts to prove his company has been using the proper channels to get rid of the garbage. Three dump receipts from August for thousands of kilograms worth of stuff he has no explanation how the garbage got so far away. There's people going into that property in and out. That's what was happening. 
and I don't know, they stole the stuff or whatever from inside the house and then dumped it. Adding insult to injury? This garbage, just a few hundred meters away from Slessie Creek, a salmon-bearing stream right near the fish hatchery on the Chilliwack River. There's organizations that pick it all up, but, you know, it's us, the taxpayers, that have to pay for it all. Right. It's pretty sad, really sad, actually. If nobody takes responsibility for this garbage, Jim says he's going to end up cleaning it up himself. One of the biggest wildfires in B.C. history is no longer a threat. Discovered July 6th, the Elephant Hill fire is now 85% contained, and all evacuation alerts for homes and residents in the area have been lifted. Originally called the Ashcroft Fire early on in the fight, you may remember it tore through Boston Flats, destroying dozens of homes there. Crews are still actively fighting 14 fires of note around B.C., But the wildfire service says with the arrival of cooler weather, progress has been made on containment. At the height of the fires, nearly 50,000 people were forced to flee their homes. Some frightening moments for an Aldergrove man who found a gun in his face when he went to check a commotion just outside his home early this morning. Grace Key spoke to the victim about what happened and why it's incredibly lucky no one was hurt. I was in my van and the guy came um, and he went in the in the entry of the house. Fearful for his safety, this Aldergrove man doesn't want to be identified. Just hours ago, he narrowly escaped gunfire after he came across two men approaching his duplex. He says, come here. I said, no, because he had a bandana on his face covering. So I got worried. I slammed the door and locked it. And he smashed here? And he smashed the window. It happened around midnight in the 2900 block of 270B Street. The victim was inside his camper at the time. It was parked in the yard of the duplex. Police were quickly on the scene after 911 calls came in reporting shots fired in the area. I was working my way to the front of the van to just, just trying to duck down and then he shot through the window and went through the other window and then I ducked right down. The bullet ended up in a neighbor's house across the road. Luckily, it landed just above the garage where a storage room is located. Neighbors voiced their concern after learning about the shooting. Because we are living neighbor and uh, if uh, something happened like uh, um, crime is uh, increasing. Langley RCMP aren't sure if this was a targeted incident. The residence itself is known to police, however, it is a rental unit. So with rental units come, you know, people who come and go. So we're not in a position right now to say that this was targeted towards that specific individual. The victim says two men took off in a waiting getaway car. A woman was behind the wheel. Police are looking over security video from the house and are seeking more information on a blue four-door sedan seen in the area. Grace Key, Global News. It is not a glancing blow this time. Puerto Rico takes the full brunt of Hurricane Maria's brutal force, destroying the power grid on the island. What's left after winds near 250 kilometers an hour in just over a minute? Staying calm in the chaos, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans show how training pays off when disaster strikes a little later in the news hour. And what happened at the Yankees game today that has even ballplayers calling for better protection for fans? That's later on the news hour. Raging floodwaters swallow neighborhoods in Puerto Rico. 
As Hurricane Maria pounds the area, the storm destroyed hundreds of homes and power is out on the entire island. At least nine people have died so far during this storm in the Caribbean. Maria was the strongest hurricane to hit Puerto Rico in more than eight decades. The island's emergency director says the U.S. Commonwealth is likely destroyed. It showed little mercy. Tonight, Maria's destructive path is only starting to become clear. Swaths of Puerto Rico underwater, roads turned to raging rivers, roofs ripped off, trees toppled, cars overturned, power out to virtually the entire island. Have you ever seen anything like this? Me? Never. This man says he feared for his life. As the relentless storm slammed into his home this morning as a ferocious Category 4 hurricane. The situation here in San Juan is dire. The winds here have been intensifying and the worst is yet to come. We have sought shelter in a concrete structure, but as you can see, it is a scene of utter chaos. After dodging most of Hurricane Irma's wrath days ago, Puerto Rico and its three and a half million American citizens bore the brunt of Maria for hours. As the storm passed, we got our first look at the damage. Some homes obliterated, residents in shock. It was really scary. Maria, the strongest storm to ravage Puerto Rico in nearly a century, first sliced through the Caribbean. Overnight, Maria battered St. Croix, the largest of the U.S. Virgin Islands. It is very scary. The wind with the noises going all around you. In St. Thomas, widespread flooding as residents were just beginning to clean up after Hurricane Irma's direct hit. The storm's trail of devastation leaving much of the remote island of Dominica in ruins. This aerial video, the first to emerge after Maria's fury cut off communications. Tonight, as Puerto Rico begins to assess its damage, many residents like Mireya Aragon don't know if they'll have homes to return to. How horrible is it to look around and see it's, this island like this? It's very sad. It's very, very sad. Very um, heartbroken. An island without power and now seemingly without enough resources to cope with an unfolding disaster. Gabe Gutierrez, NBC News, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Well, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with where Maria's heading next. Christy. Chris, there's no doubt the death toll will rise in Puerto Rico. Maria slammed the island as a Category 4, but it weakened significantly once it hit the mountains, and it's now a Category 2. But as you can see in this imagery, the eye of the hurricane is becoming much more well-defined, meaning I think in any minute you'll see it be upgraded to a Category 3, and then it will batter the coast of the Dominican Republic, and it will be a strong Category 3 as it does so. Then we're watching Turks and Caicos. It will be that area. Area that will be hit hardest with a deadly storm surge of up to four meters, Chris. All right, Christy, thanks very much. We'll check in a little later with the local forecast. Until then, the transit hub where you have to hurry up and wait. It's nuts like this every single morning, man. What's driving the insane demand for this bus route and how to fix it next? And later, a hotel happy to take any guest except this one caught on the security camera. Continuing our news hour focus on where we live and the livability of Metro Vancouver, tonight we visit an area where affordable housing and transportation collide. The 208th Street corridor in Langley is growing so fast, John Wall reports the transit system isn't keeping up. Every day, it's the same routine. It's nuts like this every single morning, man. Township of Langley residents forced to stand in line. It's crazy. <laughs> Very crazy. 
for the chance to stand on the bus if they're lucky. Some having to wait for a second, even third bus to start off their commute. Like I've seen the lineup come snake all the way around the building and halfway back up here. It's tiring, you know, it really is. By the time you get into work, actually you're tired. Others say the wait isn't even the worst part. Rather wait and stand, this is ridiculous. If you build it, they will come. And development and densification have people flooding to suburbs like the township of Langley. Only problem, buses like the 555 that run every seven minutes still can't keep up. With us exploding like it has, what, 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 what do they need to know? I mean, we're, we're taking transit, so bring us more transit. Now in 2016, ridership on the 555 jumped over a million passengers a year. That's up 200,000 from 2015. It also has the second highest percentage of being overcrowded across the entire system at 30%. There were so many people crammed on there. It was so horrendous I had to get off. The township's mayor calling the transit problems growing pains. When you're developing new neighborhoods, um, you know, it's, it's the old story. Everybody wants everything and everybody wants it now, but it takes time as we work through that. TransLink CEO says the service is a victim of its own success. We think that that corridor for the 555 on Highway 1 over Port Man is a really good candidate to try uh, to use double-decker buses. Bus riders say find a solution soon or watch that success turn into a transit failure. By doing this, you're making us all want to go take our, our cars again. With construction in the area not slowing down, people wanting to complain about waiting for a bus better get in line. John Hua, Global News. This week in our Where We Live series, we've been focusing on Metro Vancouver transportation issues. And on Friday night, we'll be broadcasting live from the shipyards in North Vancouver, talking about the future of transit on and off the North Shore. Now, housing is another major issue, and hundreds more modular homes are on the way in Vancouver now that City Council has voted to fast-track the project. The ambitious goal is to have 600 up in time for winter. As Nadia Stewart reports, it's a move being welcomed by some and criticized by others. It's been almost a year in on this housing pilot project. 40 modular units stacked three stories high on city land. And now hundreds more units are on the way. We've been waiting nine years now for a provincial government to actually invest in solving homelessness uh, urgently. And uh, the new provincial government's uh, showing that leadership. With the NDP government setting aside $291 million for the construction of modular homes in B.C. over the next two years, Vancouver City Council moves quickly to get in on that offer. We do need these temporary fixes like modular housing. We've got to get people off the street. But even though councillors voted unanimously to approve regulatory changes allowing for these units, some still have concerns. I want to make sure these temporary homes don't become permanent uh, band-aids uh, instead of looking at a solution. Vision Vancouver has proven to us that they haven't kept their promise of ending homelessness. In fact, the numbers are higher than ever before. It's why one housing advocate turned independent Vancouver by-election candidate says what's being done still is not enough. 600 units a year for three years that's only 1800 we already have 2138 homeless people so it's not enough what's more says the green party candidate it's taken the city much too long to get here housing first is is, is essential in, in sort of stabilizing the population and it it's it's a really important part of the strategy so really in fact this is quite long overdue 
One man who calls this building home tells Global News living here has been a game changer. The city's plan is to have 600 more units up in time for winter. Nadia Stewart, Global News. A very important meeting for Canada's new governor general. Nice to see you. The rare gift Julie Payette brought for the Queen. And when the worst happens, you see the best in people. How Mexico is rallying to recover from that major earthquake. Next. Back to our top story now in the devastating earthquake that rocked central Mexico. As the world watches that crisis unfold, Mexicans are showing the world how to respond to a natural disaster. Tonight, across the earthquake zone, the first responders were often those who just showed up first. So many everyday citizens running in to help. A sea of hands in motion, moving water where it's needed. This is quite an organizational feat here. I was five years old when when the last uh, earthquake happened, the, the big one. And we have been taught and we have been drilling for this. Mexico City was rocked by a deadly quake in 1985. Yesterday morning, they held a routine earthquake drill to prepare for the next disaster. The drill finishing just hours before the real nightmare began. Another quake hitting on the same day, 32 years later. And now, waves of volunteers mobilizing, coming far and wide, including an urban search and rescue team deploying from L.A., Israel sending 25 engineers. A number of buildings have collapsed in this neighborhood, and what folks are doing now is ferrying literally water by hand, by human hand, a chain, a long chain of humanity here, taking all of this water several blocks this way to a high school where they're going to be giving out that water. People here know these are the critical hours to find survivors, and so many are now answering the call. This is Mexico City as its best. While the toll is heavy, along with hearts, a sense of purpose reigns supreme. Out of one disaster, many at the ready, doing whatever it takes. Ron Mott, NBC News, Mexico City. The Ontario government is taking aim at careless drivers who cause injury or death, raising the possibility of similar action right here in B.C. Under the proposed new laws, careless drivers convicted of killing or injuring someone could lose their license for up to five years, face fines up to $50,000, and be sentenced to as much as two years in jail. B.C.'s public safety minister says he's interested in the Ontario changes. It's pretty clear that uh, there are a lot of people, and we've seen some recent cases where you have, you know, uh, people who think that they are uh, quite entitled to drive at 180 kilometers uh, across a bridge and that, uh, you know, that that's no big deal, that clearly they're not getting the message with the existing uh, fine and penalty structures in place. So uh, I'm more than willing uh, to look at what Ontario is doing and see if it could be applied here in B.C. Ontario's laws would be the toughest in Canada. Minister Farnworth says he wants to take a closer look at them. Well, it was a big day for Canada's incoming Governor General. Very nice to see you. Very nice to see you. Former astronaut Julie Payette met Queen Elizabeth at Balmoral Castle, Her Majesty's summer residence in Scotland. The Queen made Payette an extraordinary companion of the Order of Canada, among other new honours. And Payette brought gifts for the Queen, including two framed photos of Scotland taken from space. Payette takes over from David Johnston in about two weeks, becoming Canada's 29th Governor General. Well, it doesn't have quite the Hollywood appeal of snakes on a plane, but this goat in a hotel caused quite a stir in Auburn, Massachusetts. 
The goat had been spotted wandering around town since last Friday night and eventually ended up in the local La Quinta Hotel, where it was caught and eventually returned to its owner at a local farm. In health matters tonight, a recall of one brand of ice cream. Fraser Health is recalling original Kulfi brand products from Supreme Ice Cream in Surrey. The popsicle-shaped frozen dairy treats should be thrown out due to possible contamination. They've been sold primarily to Indian restaurants and food stores throughout the Lower Mainland. Fraser Health says the product was prepared in a facility that doesn't meet public health safety guidelines. One of the top fundraising events on the fall calendar raised over $600,000 for ovarian cancer research today. London Calling was the theme at the sold-out Hope Couture fashion show held at the Rocky Mountaineer train station. More than 400 people attended. I was very happy to be the master of ceremonies today, helping man about town Fred Lee auction off some great prizes, including a trip to London. Money raised goes to the BC Cancer Foundation to support research into a cure for reproductive cancers. And a big thank you to everybody who showed up for that today. Celebrating the exceptionally long life of a celebrity rodent. Oh, yay! Why Wyatt and Willie was no ordinary groundhog later on the news hour. But first, fashion faux pas or amazing coincidence? The story behind this photograph that goes way beyond twinning. Tomorrow, heart attacks can be unexpected and devastating. But new findings give hope. Your lifestyle may already include a single habit that's critical to staying healthy and reducing risk. Tomorrow on Global News Hour at 6. A classic fashion nightmare showing up at a wedding to find someone else wearing the same thing. But this picture is just the tip of the iceberg at this wedding. We'll show you more right after Christie's weather. And starting with, yes, some snow in the forecast. That's exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yes, so uh, Environment Canada did put out an alert. Not a warning because we're not expecting a lot of accumulation, but a, an alert for all drivers heading to the mountain passes tonight into tomorrow morning. We had some snow uh, earlier today, and we have the possibility tonight. This is the Okanagan Connector right now. You can see a little bit of accumulation on the sides of the roads. I did see in one image some big flakes coming down. And one thing I wanted to mention is that you could be driving along and the roads look completely clear. It could be completely dry. But with this type of a pattern, all of a sudden you could run into this. And this was actually the scene this morning on the Kootenai Pass uh, at just before 5 a.m. And that's what we can expect overnight tonight and through the morning hours tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be pockets and it could be really intense when it actually happens. So make sure you're prepared. Even if you think, oh, it looks clear. Well, it may not be uh, in not too long. And it's because of this pool of cold air that we have across the region, which is shifting out of the area. But we are seeing significant moisture pushed down from the north. And that's why we'll see the moisture across the south overnight tonight and into tomorrow morning. It will finally push out by about noon. And by the way, that southeastern part of the province, we haven't forgotten about you. There's still 10 fires of note in through your area, 14 across the province, and we're hoping that that moisture will push down into your region and really help things out. We've had much cooler conditions in the last little while, but it's really the rain that we'll, we need. By the way, snowfall warning in place for Jasper and Banff 
National Park right now. Some areas could see up to 15 centimeters for higher elevations. No warnings in place for our province, but yes, that southeastern corner could see some uh, good moisture through the overnight periods tonight, which will be a huge reprieve. Now, meanwhile, the rest of the province, that low pressure center or upper level lows will shift out of our area uh, through the overnight periods. And this is your tomorrow. So very pleasant, especially along the coast. 17 in areas like Terrace and towards Sandspin. Down through the south, still a chance of showers in the morning before it shifts out of your area and you'll be enjoying sunny breaks by the afternoon. Highs only about 13, for example, in Merritt, 10 in Williams Lake. So below average for this time of year. I've kept in a chance of showers in through uh, Chilliwack and Abbotsford into the early morning hours tomorrow, but you should see it uh, clear out later on in the day and a very pleasant Thursday for all areas. Friday's looking spectacular. We're actually warm up. 19 degrees with plenty of sunshine. Beautiful on Saturday. I had a chance of showers in the forecast for the weekend just yesterday, but we're starting to back off on that weekend so far is looking pretty nice. All right, two women celebrating birthdays tonight. Grace Harwood and Agnes Effa. Congratulations to you both and one anniversary for you tonight. 70 years celebrating by uh, Zeta and Bob in Vernon. All right, Chris, back to you. Fantastic. All right, thanks very much, Christy. Well, you either have to laugh or cry. These women decided to laugh. We showed you the picture of two women at a wedding in Sydney, Australia, wearing the same dress and posing with the bride. But that's only part of the picture. Here's the rest of the story. Six women all wearing the same dress, and they are not the bridesmaids. Making it all the more amazing, it wasn't a huge wedding, only about 200 people. All six bought the $160 dress from a store called Forever New. After some initial shock, the six eventually bonded over their similar fashion sense and danced the night away, of course. Good for them. That's why you wear a shocking blue suit. Are we, you know, nobody else is going to wear it. Are we nice sure they never spoke to each other? Because that's like a really weird coincidence. Uh, absolutely. That's why I made the news sale, out. as our producer said. Maybe it was on sale may, as may, we may. snapped it up. But it go, good to see them uh, laughing about it as opposed to being totally upset. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Is that the worst? Well... Yeah, it's not, it's not great. I don't worry about fashion that much. <laughs> and yet you always nail it. <laughs> Thanks. Squire's here now. Uh, Sophie I, I, had to go home. We feel bad for her. She's thanks. feeling better. She did the five and then was down for the she count. She toughed so. it out. She toughed it out. She, she toughed it out like Jake LaMotta did. We'll yes. talk about Jake LaMotta later in the program. Uh, two games into the exhibition season, and people are noticing Jake Vertanen for all the right reasons. I felt like I played my game uh, for the first two games. I felt like I was myself out there. And the Canucks want that old self to be the Jake Vertanen that was a force in junior hockey. Also coming up tonight, there will be no more winters for Wyarton Willie, a colorful memorial for Canada's famous prognosticating rodent. A little later. Squire came to work today thinking he had a very blue tie yeah, on. Very blue, but the you. Are extremely blue. Pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah, but it's here. This is the issue. I, yeah, that's. I feel like I have depressed blue on it. And not even fun close. Fun blue on. Okay. What is even better? What is even better than Brock Besser playing well in the preseason for the Canucks? It's Jake Vertanen looking good too. We saw. We saw what Besser could do when he came up last season. He could score goals at the NHL level, and we believe he is NHL material. The same right now cannot be said for Jake Vertanen, at least not yet. The Canucks drafted him to be a power forward. We all know the story. He struggled to be that even in the minors, but he is still young. And one of his new coaches believes he can reach his potential if he puts his mind to it and does the necessary work. 
he's a guy who uh, I just don't know where what the limit is for him. I mean, he's got such such ability, such raw talent, and so I think that uh, you know I think he's shown very well, and it's and he I think he can play comma kind of almost any game that you ask him to play. Whatever position the coaches have me at, I want to fill that spot for him. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like for me, I just want to come in here and obviously be here. And uh, it doesn't matter who's on the roster, who's you know who they bring in for camp. I'm just going to worry about myself and uh, what it takes to make the lineup for opening night. Trent Cole on the right, Gary Agnew in the left. Their job will be to run the Utica Comets this year, but right now they're running the younger Canucks because the older Canucks are in China. They're taking on the Calgary Flames. Oop, that's a giveaway by Cole Castles, and this is going to be a goal for Tanner Glass. So, one nothing for Calgary, who have a lot of veterans in this one, or at least more than the Canucks. Oh, a little deflection by Ryan Lomberg. Okay, we just heard about Jake Vertanen. I want you to watch this defensive play by Vertanen. Canucks in the power play. It's a two-on-one for the Flames the other way. Who catches up and breaks it up? Vertanen. That's right. Used to play in this building for the uh, Hitmen. Starts to play the other way. Castles now. You saw him make the mistake earlier. Drop pass. Anton Rodin gets his own rebound as it bounces around and skates. 2-1 at that point. 3-1 now late in the first for the Flames over the Canucks. Right now, the two division leaders in Major League Soccer are both Canadian teams. Vancouver, of course, leads the West. Six games to go in the season. This Saturday, they're home to Colorado. And Toronto is out front in the East. In fact, Toronto FC has the best record in MLS. And really, they should have been the champions last year, but they lost a shootout to Seattle. The other Canadian team in MLS is not having quite the same season as Toronto and Vancouver. Montreal, six points out of a playoff spot with six games to go. So they need to win now and tonight they were facing TFC in Toronto but the impact made an impact in this game offensively although this is a weird goal Alex Bono is trying to clear it here the Toronto netminder he hits the back of Ignacio Piatti and it goes in sometimes you got to put your calf in the way or your calves in this case and it paid off one nothing for Montreal and watch this shot Marco Marco Donadell Ooh, that was nice. 2-0 for Montreal. And then Piatti again, this time using the front of his body to score. Final in this one. Lots of goals. 5-3. It's a big win for Montreal over Toronto. In 2002, a young girl was hit in the head with a puck and died because of it while watching a Columbus Blue Jackets game. The NHL said that's enough. They told every team to put up safety netting to protect all its fans. Baseball has yet to mandate nets to protect its fans down the first and third base lines. They've encouraged teams to extend netting, but not mandated it, and that's a mistake. Today, another fan was hit with a line drive, a little girl at Yankee Stadium, who thankfully will survive. Now, we'll show you what happened, but clearly we won't show you the impact. So be warned, just the same, these pictures might be disturbing. Todd Fraser is at the plate. Watch his reaction. It tells you it all. Wow. He can see what's happened. The little girl takes us right in the face. All the players in the field stopped. Some in tears. And after a four-minute delay, they took the little girl to hospital. 
The Yankees say they have heard she'll be okay. But after the game, Brian Dozier of the Minnesota Twins said, I have seen enough of this over the years. Either one, you don't you don't bring kids down there. Or number two, every stadium needs to have nets. That's it. I don't care about the damn the view of a fan or what. It's all about safety. And I still have a knot in my stomach. I don't know if you guys saw it, but I mean, I hope the kid's okay. Jake LaMotta died today at the age of 95. His life was immortalized in a brilliant film, Raging Bull, one of the greatest sports movies ever made. In fact, it's one of the greatest movies, period, ever made. LaMotta was a world champion for a while. He had six epic fights with Sugar Ray Robinson. He won only one, but his incredible toughness in the other battles with Sugar Ray, including the final one, where despite numerous hard shots, Robinson could knock LaMotta down, made the Bronx Bull legendary. There you go. Wow. Yeah, amazing, amazing talent. That fight was known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh-huh. They stopped it in the 13th round, but Jake still hadn't hit the ground. Amazing. Yeah. Here's Jay Durant now with a preview of Global News at 11. Jay. Thank you, Chris. We have a crew in South Surrey, White Rock tonight. That's the federal riding held by Diane Watts. We'll have reaction to the news that she'll be one of the candidates vying for leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party. And we're keeping a close eye on the rescue efforts in Mexico after that 7.1 magnitude earthquake. Crews are desperately searching for survivors trapped in the rubble. We will have the very latest. Those stories and much more coming up tonight on Global News at 11. All right, Jay, thanks very much. When we come back, the final act of Wired and Willie. Yeah, the groundhog has passed. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Well, you might have felt the shockwaves across the country, particularly in the meteorological profession. Mm hmm. From Ontario, Canada's most famous groundhog has passed away. Global's Alan Carter looks back at the life of Wyatt and Willie and his surprisingly checkered past. To some, he may have just been a rodent in a box. But for the town of Wyarton, Ontario, he was Willie. Oh, Wyarton Town Council announcing that Willie, the prognosticating albino groundhog, has passed away at the ripe old age of 13, more than three times the lifespan of an average groundhog. But Willie's life was never average. He lived a life of pampered luxury, working only one day a year. Every February 2nd, better known as Groundhog Day, he would be paraded in front of the paparazzi, eyes blinded by flashbulbs. Somehow, Willie would report the news of either an early spring or a long winter. According to Willie... Six more weeks! Like rodent royalty, this Willie isn't the first of his line. No one knows exactly how many Willies there have been, but their reign has been marked by controversy. In 1999, the press was invited to record this solemn image, a funeral service for a departed Willie complete with creepy pennies on the eyes. But it turned out this cadaver was a fake. Town officials were forced to admit this was a stuffed groundhog put on display because the original Willie had badly decomposed. For this Willie, trouble of his own when early in his reign, two understudy groundhogs were killed by a more senior rodent. Officials suspected Willie, but as long as the town square was full of tourists every February, no one asked too many questions. But now Willie's long reign as top rodent is done. This iteration will be laid to rest at the end of September when a wee Willie understudy will assume the heavy mantle of forecasting the end of winter. 
So long, Willie. Long live Willie. Now, because it's Groundhog Day, does he not, like, come back to life? Or yeah, that's right. Again. Just like the movie? Just like the movie? Yeah. <laughs> not sure.